friends, I'm Dr. Gracie Christie, and this is Conversations with Consequences, the radio show of the Catholic Association, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network at 5 p.m. on Saturdays, and also on Sirius XM Channel 130. If you want to listen to our show as a podcast, go directly to your favorite platform or to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today my co-hostess is my friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson. Hello, Maureen. Hi there. Great to be on with you today, Gracie. Very nice to have you. And today we have the great honor of an old friend of Conversations with Consequences and a man very well known, I'm sure, to all our audience. He is papal biographer George Weigel, and he has a new book out that he has condescended to come on the show and talk to us about. And it's called The Next Pope, the Office of Peter and a Church in Mission. Good afternoon, George. Hi, Gracie. Hi, Maureen. It's a great pleasure. It's no condescension to be with you. It's a great pleasure to be with you both. Oh, well, that's how we feel it, because you are a Catholic gentleman and a scholar and the most amazing historian. Your last book, the one on modernity, which was so... The The irony of modern Catholic history. Exactly. That was so. I was just talking about it with my sister-in-law. It was so dense and so complicated, and you really you bring so much knowledge to everything that you do. And now you have brought a lot of knowledge and so many years of experience with uh, papal politics and personalities to this new book. So, George, what inspired you to write uh, the next pope? Tracy and Maureen, I decided earlier this year that something ought to be done to try to elevate the Catholic conversation about the future of the church. This is getting awfully shrieky. Lots of Twitter shrieks going back and forth. Uh, lots of polemics. And I thought that one way to try to do that elevation would be to look at the future of the church through the prism of the papacy and imagine what the next pope, a pope of the future, uh, would look like were he to be, if you will, the ideal pope for advancing the new evangelization. So I simply sat down and wrote this and uh, talked to my friends at Ignatius Press who were happy to uh, be part of the project. This is a book for the whole church. It's not simply about clerics, cardinals. There are no candidates for the papacy discuss. This is not a horse race handicapping book. It's a it's an agenda. It's an agenda for the church uh, of the future viewed through the lens of, of the papacy. George, you've had the very unique privilege of knowing, well, our current pope and our past two popes very well. You've had countless personal audiences with them over the past probably over 30 years. And this book seems shaped a great deal by the conversations that you've had with these popes, particularly St. John Paul II and, and Benedict XVI and now Pope Francis. So what challenges do you point to in the book that you think our next pope will have? And they are myriad, I'm sure. They certainly are. Um, the book does reflect my personal experience of, of the three men uh, you mentioned. It also uh, reflects my experience of Catholics throughout the world church in a variety of cultural situations and a variety of uh, stations of life uh, in, in the church. Uh, I've been privileged to 
know a lot of very impressive uh, Catholic men and women over the last three or four decades, and and bits and pieces of that experience are all all through this book. I think the single biggest challenge for any Catholic leader today, and certainly for Pope, is to recognize the fundamental fact of Catholic life around the world today. That is all in Catholicism. Catholicism embraced in full, Catholicism lived joyfully in uh, light of the new evangelization, uh, works, has a future, has a present, uh, has an impact on society. And what I've been calling for some 20 years now, Catholic light simply doesn't work. It doesn't work evangelically. It doesn't introduce people to Christ. It doesn't bring them into the church. And it eventually hollows the church out so that it really can have no impact on society because it's simply a reflection or a, a mirror image of, of society. So that's, that's the biggest challenge. Uh, and within that is the challenge of how do you reignite the faith? Uh, how do you invite people into the adventure of orthodoxy uh, in those moribund churches of, of Catholic light? even while you're encouraging the vibrant churches of all-in Catholicism. George, it makes a lot of sense to me what you're saying, because as the culture moves on and on, becoming less and less like a culture that uh, we as, as Orthodox or faithful Catholics can understand and can live comfortably with, there doesn't seem to be a way to live in that culture except those two extremes, the, the Catholic light that mirrors back to the culture exactly what the culture is proposing, and this other way, which which I believe, as you do, that is the way that the church has to confront history at, at every age and at every stage of, uh, in the last 2,000 years. I, I have come more and more to the view uh, in recent years, Gracie, that uh, the only way the church is going to be of use in this present cultural moment is to convert it. Um, we now have a situation which the Supreme Court of the United States has said that a biblical view of man and woman, male and female, he created that, uh, is completely irrelevant to U.S. civil rights law. And under certain circumstances, to hold that view and apply it to your employment practice uh, could be uh, you could be liable to a charge of legal discrimination. I mean, that's how bad this has got. And the answer to that can't be politics. I mean, we have to play good politics. We have to play good legal defense against the kind of uh, assaults on the truth about the human person that we see all around us. But above all, we've got to get to the business of converting this culture by holding up the Lord Jesus as the image of what a truly free, truly fulfilled human being is. Christ reveals to us the truth about ourselves. The, the next Pope has to say that time and time and time again, and he's got to encourage and empower all of the people of the church to say that as well, because that's the only way we're getting through this season of meltdown uh, in which we find ourselves today. George, you write in your book, 
I'm going to quote, The next pope will be a transitional figure in a different way than his immediate predecessors. So it seems appropriate to ponder now what the Church has learned during the pontificates of these three conciliar popes and to suggest what the next pope might take from that learning. Can you expound a bit on what you mean by transitional figure? Yeah, the... uh, The difference is this. John Paul II and Benedict XVI were both significant figures at the Second Vatican Council and have lived the uh, turbulent half century uh, since the council. Um, uh, Jorge Mario Bergoglio was not at Vatican II, but he was a young Jesuit priest and superior in the immediate aftermath of the council, lived that turbulence in a very difficult political situation in Argentina. So in that sense, he's very much a a pope of the Vatican II era. Uh, The next pope will almost certainly be someone who was a teenager uh, at the time of Vatican II, might even be someone who was a child at the time of Vatican II. So the next pope is simply not going to bring to the office the experience of the council itself and its immediate aftermath that these three uh, popes of my personal acquaintance have brought. So that that's a big uh, shift. I think the other big shift is that things have sorted out in the church. Uh, as I said a moment ago, uh, we, if we, if we look for the living parts of the world church, those are the parts that are living the Second Vatican Council as an invitation to the new evangelization and to embrace Catholic truth in full. And if we look at the moribund or dying parts of the world church, those are the parts of the church that are still trying to make the failed project of Catholic white work. So there there really oughtn't to be any big argument about that anymore. It's pretty obvious empirically. Um, and yet the next Pope has got to figure out what to do with that. And I have some suggestions on, on what might be done to, uh, to lead the church forward into, um, uh, a bright uh, future of Christ centered, gospel centered evangelism. And, and George, you say that the next Pope needs to radiate the joy of the gospel, to have a missionary spirit for this new evangelization, and it just seems we need this more than ever as the church is emerging from lockdowns, and I don't know about your parish, but at ours it sure seems that there's been a decline in attendance even now that, quite a decline in attendance even now that our church is opened up again. So what I really want to ask you is who might fit the description of joy, joyfully radiating the gospel? I'm tempted to press you for names, but that would be unfairly putting you on the spot. So I definitely won't do that. But but what is, uh, I know the book is intended to be more of a job description. So can you tell us a little bit more about the, the job description for the next Pope and some of the challenges that he'll have to confront? Yeah, um, I wouldn't be too concerned right away about people being somewhat slow to return to to reopen churches, which are reopened under some very odd circumstances. This is going to take a while. People are going to have to get comfortable with the reality of uh, uh, social distancing, uh, personal protection, etc. That will come in time, and there have been a lot of 
I think, creative ways to, uh, developed to reach out to people during this during this shutdown. Uh, but to your to your real question, uh, Maureen, I, I think the first thing we really want to know about anyone who is being called to an office of leadership in the church, especially priests, bishops, and the Pope, is have they demonstrated already in their own life an apostolic uh, personality? Uh, Have they demonstrated that they can bring people to meet the Lord and to enter into the community of his friends? Uh, Are they able to use media in all of its various forms to make that offer of friendship uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing we ought to know about anybody. Before somebody gets into a seminary, we should know whether they have been, in however modest a way, a successful witness to Christ and and a compelling witness to Christ and to the gospel. That certainly should be the first question asked of anyone being considered for the office of bishop, has this man as a priest been a compelling evangelist? And it seems to me it's the question that the College of Cardinals needs to ask themselves uh, about any possible future pope. Now, as we said at the beginning, this is not a, a book about papal elections and politics. Uh, There are no candidates for the papacy named in this book. I leave all of that to others. Uh, I do suggest that uh, in the person of John Paul II, for example, we do have one possible model of a vibrantly Christ-centered, gospel-centered bishop who could could do all of that on a world stage. Uh, This is not a simple discernment to make, uh, and it's not the only discernment to make. Uh, I think the next pope is going to have to do a major house-cleaning job uh, in the Vatican, so either he's going to have to have the gumption and spine to do that himself, or perhaps even better, have the good sense to hire a second-in-command who will be his house-cleaner, if you will. Uh, and get that job done once and for all so that we can get on with the new evangelization without financial scandals and other forms of scandal in the Vatican being an impediment to the preaching uh, of the gospel. But uh, I think above all, uh, the question is, has this person, has this man shown himself to be someone in whom others can see, as you put it, the joy of the gospel, the face of Christ, the compassion of Christ, the truth of Christ. That's what we're looking You you need to know whether the man can do that, uh, because this is not a job where you can learn that on site. Uh, The papacy is simply too overwhelming a burden uh, for someone to have to learn on the job evangelical or apostolic uh, qualities. When you're describing this apostolic personality, this compelling evangelist, I'm thinking Pope Francis has this in spades. He's a person who has been able to appeal to people that 
have instinctually or just out of force of long habit dismissed the church as a force for good. People that I've known, for instance, who were able to look at the church in a different way because Pope Francis was heading it and he was speaking a kind of language um, that, that made more sense to them. Do you see that same kind of compelling evangelism and apostolic personality or, or something a little different uh, to meet these times, which are very complicated right now with a lot of anger against the church, church burnings all over, not just the United States, but also in Europe. What do you think? I think there's something to be learned um, from each of these past three pontificates. No pope gets everything right. Um, And it would be foolish to expect any pope to get everything right. So uh, a calm, dispassionate analysis of what went right and what went not so right in each of these pontificates, uh, I think is is important uh, to do right now. Uh, And I've tried to do that in the book without saying, well, John Paul II got this right and Francis got this right and Benedict got that wrong. It's all implied in the text and in the recommendations I make. Uh, I would say, for example, that while John Paul II was a tremendous uh, witness to the gospel around the world, um, the management of the Vatican uh, could have been done more uh, effectively, and the reform of that management could have been done more effectively. Benedict XVI was probably the greatest papal preacher, homilist, uh, since Gregory the Great in the 6th century. And yet, because the communications apparatus around him was so inadequate, so unable to break through a mainstream media stereotype about him as this grouchy old reactionary, um, that didn't get heard as well as he might. Uh, As you say, Pope Francis has uh, invited uh, a lot of people who were skeptical uh, about the church as as a place of, of mercy and compassion uh, to think again. Um, at the same time, uh, and that's very good, at the same time, there does seem to have been an outbreak of some rather strange ideas in the church uh, in which people, some people, have detached uh, mercy and compassion from truth. Uh, and of course, sometimes the most compassionate and merciful thing we can do for somebody is to help them see the truth uh, of their situation. So I, I've tried to reflect um, on on all of these, you know, good news, bad news aspects of, of recent pontificates in, in laying out this uh, job description, if you will, uh, this agenda for the future. Well, we certainly know St. Peter himself didn't get it all right. He certainly got a thing or two or three wrong. (laughs) So your book really impacted Cardinal Dolan. Apparently, he really loved this book. And as he does, apparently commonly with books that he loves, he sends them around to his fellow cardinals. And in this case, people sort of looking for a story decided that it caused a stir. And we would love for you to just address that briefly and explain that silliness to us. 
Well, let's let's get the mythology of this sorted out at the beginning. Cardinal Dolan did not send my book to the College of Cardinals. Ignatius Press sent my book to the College of Cardinals. And Cardinal Dolan kindly put in that package a letter of one sentence saying, I am grateful to Ignatius Press for sharing this important reflection on the future of the church with the College of Cardinals. That's all that happened. A gang of people who, for whatever reason, wanted to misrepresent this, have systematically misrepresented it, and somehow found it uh, a breach of the, of the protocols. It's no breach of the protocols. Uh, and people who are trying to paint it that way are either agenda-driven or haven't read the book or haven't read the Cardinal's one-sentence letter. So, I mean, Cardinal Dolan and I are very old friends. We've done a lot of things together over the years. Uh, this was standard practice for Ignatius Press to send what they regard as an important book to senior leaders of the church, and the Cardinal kindly provided kind of cover letter thanking Ignatius Press for that courtesy. End of story. George, in, in your book, The Next Pope, you discuss five epochal transitions in Christian history, and you state that we are in the fifth, that it's underway now. The movement, you call it, from counter-reformation Catholicism to the Church of the New Evangelization. You wrote, Catholics live today within the turbulence of the transitional moment. Can you break down that a bit for us? That really rang true to me. I think we've talked about this before, Gracie, in discussing uh, my book, The Irony of Modern Catholic History. Um, Beginning in the late 19th century with the pontificate of Leo XIII, uh, the church began a slow, uh, sometimes contentious uh, exploration of how it might convert the world under these very distinctive circumstances we, we call modernity. Uh, I think the fundamental aspect of this transition is from a church in which there were secure institutions living in a culture that was not hostile to the faith Uh, and therefore in some respects helped transmit the faith to a church that is understanding that it's living in apostolic times. The culture no longer helps transmit the faith. Uh, I mean, you and Maureen know from your own families and and children, I certainly know it, that uh, the culture is an impediment to mm-hmm. to uh, transmitting the faith right now. The, the gospel has to be proposed. People have to be invited into the communion of the, of the friends of, of Jesus. So, as I said in a piece on the Wall, in the Wall Street Journal last uh, week, uh, on Friday the 17th of July, the paradox of this for the next pope is that he has to lead the church forward by taking it back, by taking it back to first century Galilee so that everyone in the church can hear again the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. If we're not proactively doing that, we will get overwhelmed by this tsunami of uh, 
what John Paul II called the culture of death, uh, a culture inimical to a biblical and Christian view uh, of the human person. So um, these shifts are never easy, uh, but, the, but it's, it's absolutely necessary now to transform all of those institutions built and defended and rebuilt during the era of counter-reformation Catholicism into launch pads, launch pads for, uh, for mission uh, in the future. That, that's the transition. Mm-hmm. It, it's so interesting, George. And I think, I, I mean, these time, weird, weird times when we're in quarantine and lockdown, I think we're all learning so many different lessons. And one of the lessons I've been really focused on is sort of simplicity and going back to basics and the important things of life. And I think that's so true in terms of teaching the faith because, I mean, the culture, as you mentioned, is so incredibly toxic and and people can't understand the more complex and controversial teachings of the faith without understanding the basics. So I, I love what you're saying about going back to Galilee. You talk in the book about what the Holy Spirit has been teaching a church in transition. Would you mind reflecting on that a little bit for us? Because I think everyone's trying to decipher these weird times. What is the Holy Spirit trying to teach us? And, and particularly in the church. I think fundamentally the Holy Spirit is asking us to recognize that we're not in Christendom anymore. Uh, there's going to be a profound countercultural edge to the gospel, and therefore we all have to be evangelists and missionary uh, disciples. And that begins, I think, Warren, or at least certainly part of the beginning, is the re catechesis, the re-education of Catholics. We should make this time of coming out of lockdown and shutdown churches an opportunity to re-explain to people what is the Holy Eucharist, why are we there on Sundays, why that's the most important thing we do every week, and how that's the spiritual reactor core that provides the, the energy for being uh, gospel missionaries in the week ahead. It's so wonderful, George, to see the future in this hopeful way, a spiritually hopeful way, that actually the future, our present and future moments are giving us so many new opportunities for evangelization and for adjusting our church, as you say, to its modern, to the to modernity as we're meeting it right now. So thank you so much, George, for joining us today. You can find George Weigel's book online and at your local bookstore. It's called The Next Pope. You can also find more information about him at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, visit eppc.org. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. Next up, we have Dr. Brad Wilcox of the National Marriage Project, right here on EWTN Radio. Welcome back, friends, to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Next up, we have Dr. Brad Wilcox of the National Marriage Project. He's full of interesting information about how the pandemic and the lockdowns are affecting American marriages and American families. And so welcome, Dr. Brad Wilcox. 
It's great to be here, Christy. I've been thinking a lot about how you could help us, uh, <laughs> Brad, because you study the family and marriage at the uh, National Marriage Project. And uh, there has been, uh, in my lifetime, very few challenges as great to marriage and family life, and in a sort of a generalized way, right? Of course, there's things that are more, much more challenging than pandemics and lockdowns individually, but the way it's affected every single family in the United States, and I guess it's fair to say across the globe. So in general, how do you see the pandemic and the lockdowns? What's their main effect on American families and marriages? Well, you know, I think that there are certainly some profoundly negative consequences that we're seeing play out. I, we have seen reports of increases in uh, domestic violence since the lockdown uh, began in mid-March. And we've also obviously seen the economy kind of go into free fall in some important respects. And so it was kind of both kind of go through the pandemic and then come out of it, hopefully in, in the coming months, I think one of the biggest consequences will be a decline, a further decline in the marriage rate. And so I think one enduring legacy of COVID will be that a, a large minority of uh, Americans who are young adults today will never marry. I'm thinking probably between 30 and 35 percent, which is just kind of a record number of, of Americans who won't have the, the benefit, you know, on average of, of being in a marriage, you know, of having a, a spouse to accompany them, you know, on the journey of life. So that, that's certainly the, the biggest bad news about what's unfolding Brad, um, here in our Yes. Brad, why do you, what do you attribute that to? Is it to the economic problems that people don't have the money to get married or feel they don't have the prospects? I think it's a, a concern, particularly about the future financially, and it's the difficulty and in some cases sort of the inability, especially of younger men, to find uh, and keep uh, full-time, decent-paying jobs. And so I think that, that's sort of it's one piece of sort of the marriage puzzle today. And insofar as this pandemic is making the economy worse, particularly for younger adults looking for work, I think what we're going to see is that, you know, marriage rate will dip, you know, yet again, in, in part for those economic reasons that I just articulated. Oh, but that's very dark news, Brad, because marriage is such a civilizing force, especially on men. And loneliness is a real epidemic that we're struggling with in this country. Right. And um, I've conducted analyses amidst COVID. And obviously, everyone's been hit hard. All of us have been hit hard by this pandemic. But it's it's also the case that single Americans, single parents are much more likely to be suffering from things like depression and loneliness compared to their married peers here in the U.S. So I think, I mean, marriage generally speaking, you know, conveys a lot of different good things to men and women, you know, in this country. And so, yeah, it is definitely a tragedy. There can be so many people coming out of this pandemic who, are, who will never marry. And do you think statistically that will lead to more births of children to unmarried parents? Or I know we're also looking at a demographic decrease in births as well because of this pandemic. Yeah. Right. I don't think we're actually we're going to see an increase in the share of kids being born outside of marriage. I think we'll actually see a slight increase based upon what happened since the Great Recession. We've seen a decline in uh, babies born outside of marriage since the last Great Recession. And I think that decline will actually continue pace. So I think what's going to happen and sort of in some ways, the good news, this is sort of the silver lining here is that I think for those Americans who are married or who are going to get married, I think there's kind of an increased either explicit 
probably for you and, and your audience or implicit for maybe many of your, you know, more secular friends and peers and, and colleagues, recognition that marriage is a safe harbor, mm-hmm. you know, today amidst, you know, obviously dramatic economic swings amidst recurring potential pandemics, amidst so many other things that are happening in the country. I think people who are reasonably smart about family life will kind of recognize, realize that now more than ever, it's it's great to have a spouse, kids, kin, parents parents, in-laws, to stand with you and for you in today's often dark and difficult times. And so I think that we'll see kind of commitment among those who are married increase in the wake of this uh, pandemic, and we'll see divorce fall, and the share of kids being raised in stable married families also increase. That's all really good news. You know, I'm I'm surprised what you say about the fall in divorce. I I understand that because I have felt it myself that seeing uh, how difficult it is to come confront these great global emergencies like pandemics without a strong support system, especially marriage, uh, especially when you're raising children, is the difficulty is so huge that that, that would uh, firm up the desire for a good, for a stable marriage. But it's been very hard in many homes living together 24-7 for people who aren't going out to work, able to stay home and work from home. Don't You, you don't think that that would lead to a spike in divorce? Sure. No, I'm not, I'm not minimizing the fact that there are plenty of people, there are plenty of us who found the new routine to be hard with our spouse or our kids. You know, we all benefit from having friends, uh, having work, having civic opportunities outside of the home. And when everything is kind of wrapped Mm -hmm. up inside the home, it can lead tempers to flare. It can lead people to feel like there's, you know, that there, there's no way out of whatever difficulty they might be experiencing amidst the, the lockdowns we've, you know, we've had in the last couple months. So I'm not minimizing that reality. I just think that on put all this sort of the whole picture together, I think people are coming out of this if they are married with a greater either explicit or implicit appreciation of how much their life, their financial stability, their ability to give and and receive help from members of their family, extended family too, I think there's just a heightened recognition that at the end of the day, you can't rely upon the government, you can't rely Mm -hmm. on the market, you've got to think about who is most likely to be in your corner, and that's typically, I think, for most of us, our family members. As I look into the near future, and I'm thinking that my children might still be home, all day long in September instead of going to school uh, it makes me uh, scared for women single women single moms usually single parents are moms single moms who are facing this also the the return of school but without the ability to leave the children at school and go to work and make a living what do you think that that's going to be a huge crisis if that comes to pass yeah no, I definitely think that the the failure of our schools to come up with many of the public schools come up with like a real plan to get the kids in school from Monday through Friday is going to pose a huge challenge to millions of families across the U.S. And right, it's going to be especially difficult for single parents, most of them are single moms, to figure out how to combine work and homeschooling and childcare. And yeah, it's going to lead many of them to cut back at work. It's going to lead it you know, many of them just feel like they can't cope with the financial and the emotional burdens of doing all those things. Do you think it's a wake-up call for parents, uh, for our whole culture, who that we have just 
put too much emphasis on our on schooling and what schools can do for us. For instance, to take care of our kids all day long, to keep them till 7 p.m., to feed them breakfast and lunch. Do you think that as 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 Americans who we've we've come to rely too much, not so much on our own family structures, but too much on public schooling? Yeah, no, I think it, and uh, I think you're right about that. I think it's also the case too that you know we have we've got a large family and we've had kids in the last year in public school and uh, private school and then Catholic school, and it was just so striking to us that within one week of of schools being shut down here in Virginia, our kids in private school and Catholic school were having you know, a decent online education being given to them by their schools, and yet our son in a public middle school here in Virginia had literally nothing from the school for for an entire month. So I think another takeaway here is that people are recognizing that private schools are often much more flexible and effective and <laughs> delivering a decent education uh, than are many of our public schools. And yet they have a much larger budget than most private schools, I think. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it obviously depends on the kind of schools. So Catholic schools and religious schools tend to have less uh, money per pupil uh, than the average public school. Um, but private independent schools tend to have more money you know, per pupil. But regardless of kind of the private school, you know, I think what we're seeing is that um, even the Catholic schools and the religious schools that don't have the same kinds of budgets as public schools do are much more flexible in the face of this pandemic than the typical public school. Brad, you said the silver lining coming out of this, at least for marriage, is that marriage will emerge stronger, more stable, and more likely to be a secure harbor for our children. And you also said that the meaning and practice of marriage will be changing in ways that make the soulmate model less compelling. Tell us about the soulmate model, because you've spoken to me about this before, and I think it's very interesting. There's always been kind of a romantic side to marriage, and that's that's a great thing in, in many ways. But I think what happened really in the in the 70s and beyond is that many Americans came to see marriage as primarily a romantic or an emotional uh, reality. It was primarily about something that was supposed to make you happy and fulfilled and a cause for self-growth. So what we did is we kind of, we invested, I think, both too high a set of expectations in our marriages, and we also came to see marriage as a vehicle for our own individual self-fulfillment. And in so doing, we kind of failed to recognize that marriage is about much more than our own emotional well-being. It's about providing, most importantly, I think, a, a decent home for our any, for any of our kids that we have. It's about serving our spouse and their well-being. It's about establishing a firm financial foundation and about giving and receiving help and, and, and love and solidarity to our kin. And so uh, the sort of the broader purposes, the deeper purposes of marriage were often, I think, um, lost sight of as the soulmate model came to the fore in recent decades in our culture. But I think in the face of things like the Great Recession 10 years ago and now the COVID pandemic and recession, people are, are kind of rediscovering all the ways in which marriage is about much more than an intense emotional connection between two people. You know, how it's about you know, providing a safe harbor for our kids, how it's about establishing a firm financial foundation you know, beneath um, us, and it's about kind of being... Um, Involved, invested, uh, and connected to a kinship network um, that allows us and our parents and in-laws and, and other kin to 
kind of get through tough times like the ones we're facing today. Those extended kinship networks are so important when you're raising a family, but they're also important on the other end of life when you are getting older. To have children and grandchildren near you, around you, involved in your life is is a huge bulwark against loneliness. We've seen so much, so many reports of older people, you know, being isolated because of their age and trying to protect themselves or be protected from the virus. What's been the effect on older people and their loneliness and their, their separation from, from the, the greater society? Yeah, I certainly think that um, people who are living in nursing homes and in retirement communities, um, you know, have really been locked down much more tightly in, in the last four months. Um, and for reasons that we all understand, right? But I think particularly now, We've got to uh, begin to ease those lockdowns and give, you know, our older Americans opportunities to see family and friends because, you know, what's happening um, is that there's just a tremendous sense of, of loneliness and despair and isolation um, that, you know, takes a punishing toll on, on them emotionally and spiritually. Um, but I think another point to make here is that I think, you know, many of us are going to be rethinking um, retirement communities and nursing homes, you know, for our own parents and for ourselves in, in the coming years. And so I, I think we'll see more, um, older Americans, uh, living in, uh, multi-generational homes with kind of in-law apartments, you know, either built into or attached to them or, you know, modified, you know, in someone's home so that you can, you can live, um, with your family, um, and and if if some kind of disaster strikes again, you're not going to be you know stuck um, in you know in a nursing home or retirement community you know um, in in a sort of a, a lockdown like we're seeing today. It seems like catastrophes tend to focus our minds, right, and make us think about how we've allowed ourselves to lead our lives in an individ- such an individualistic way and and in a way that's so separate. And in a way that disregards uh, our social needs as human beings, right? Our needs to be surrounded by uh, love and companionship, not just of one or two people, but of whole extended family groups. That's exactly right. And I, and I think, you know, one of the things that is frustrating about what's happening with, you know, our, you know, our workplaces, our civic organizations, our churches, is that we haven't had opportunities really to, to, to socialize with people um, at work, um, in our communities, in our churches. Um, and, um, you know, I think we've got to move quickly to figure out ways. And, and it looks particularly at this moment in time like that being outside together is not really risky at all. And so I think, you know, just to speak personally, for instance, I would be encouraging my department at the University of Virginia to, you know, just put picnic benches outside of our office building so we can kind of meet with students, um, you know, in that way and give them an opportunity to uh, be with, you know, the faculty um, so they can have that social connection, but without the, you know, the, the risk of um, passing on the virus. A lot of universities are making their plans now and announcing their plans for reopening in September. Some of them are not reopening, I think. Some are reopening in a hybrid model. Do you think that young people at the university level are especially vulnerable to this insecurity and and the lack of connectedness of of a virtual model or a hybrid model? Well, I don't know if they're especially vulnerable, but I do know that 
uh, we have obviously in recent years seen dramatic increases in anxiety and depression among young adults uh, across this country. I've certainly seen it at the University of Virginia. Um, and so I think certainly trying to kind of do things in person as much as possible um, will help to mitigate against that kind of dynamic. You know, I think, you know, um, I think we're less anxious, we're less depressed, we're less fearful when we have real human connections with other people. So I think trying to be creative and creating those connections is, is job number one for, you know, many of us working either in higher education or in primary or secondary education. I hope that the schools are, in general, having that same attitude. I feel like when I get uh, the emails from the schools, I have several children in schools at different levels, what I'm hearing a lot is uh, a lot of anxiety and fear about young people spreading the virus to older adults, which, of course, it's, it's a reality. But I'm also hearing, I think, a lot, of medical, a lot of legal fear, fear of being sued later on for making the wrong decision, a lot of anxiety about that. Do you feel that that's a, a factor in all these decisions? Yeah, no, I think that there there certainly is a lot of fear about liability and there's a lot of fear about um, passing the virus on to, to teachers and to their families um, and students' families. And although all those are legitimate concerns, but what I think does trouble me is that you would think, you know, a, a healthy society would put the welfare of its kids first. Um, and that is clearly not happening right now. Um, we are clearly not doing what we know is best for our kids, and that is to have them in person in school. I mean, I, I can see with my own kids, they're just much, much happier when they're able to, to socialize and be with, be with their peers. And the lockdown was just much harder for them, uh, particularly my teenagers, than it was for any you know, anyone else in our house. I, I just, I, I'm disappointed that we haven't yet come to this sort of conclusion that, you know, we must do really everything we can to, Uh, restart schools in person because of the emotional and social welfare, not to mention the educational welfare of our children. Mm, I totally agree with you, Brad. I've seen the same effects in my kids. My teenage children, I have two now, are very withdrawn. They spend a lot of time with their earphones in their in their ears <laughs> listening to music. And and the eagerness to talk or text or video with their friends has, has really worn away because that does not replace uh, real social interaction and real friendships. So thank you so much, Brad, for your time and expertise. I thank you for touching on all these different interesting topics about the pandemic and the lockdowns and its effect on Americans. So thank you. Thanks for having me on today, Christy. I appreciate it. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. Jesus will give us two, I like to call them twin parables, that sum up the approach we should have to Him and to our faith. The parables are simple enough to understand. The first is of a poor peasant finding a buried treasure in the midst of his work in the field. There are no real banks to speak of in ancient Palestine. People would often bury things of value in secret locations in fields. There was no sense of finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Whatever was discovered in a field belonged not to the discoverer, but to the owner. That's why the man needed to buy the field. 
it's quite obvious that the one selling had no idea that an ancient treasure was buried on his property. He didn't place the same value in the field as much as the peasant did, and so he sold it. For the peasant, selling all he had in order to get the money to buy the field was nothing compared to what he knew he would be gaining. The second parable is of a wealthy merchant searching for precious pearls, going from place to place in pursuit of something truly valuable and beautiful. Finally, he found the pearl of his dreams, whose worth was unsurpassable, but whose owner valued it less than the money he would get in exchange. So the wealthy merchant sold all that he had before, doubtless houses, gems, and other valuables, to obtain that pearl of great price. We can focus on three spiritual lessons Jesus teaches us by means of these parables. First quality is the insatiable desire for the treasure of the kingdom, which is basically an unquenchable thirst for God that God wants us to have. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told us, where your treasure is, there will your heart also be. He told us in that same sermon that many seek to store up for themselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But he wanted us to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, treasure not me measured in clothing that moths can rack, metals that rust can corrode, or money that thieves or taxes can take. Jesus is telling us that our heart must be set on God, and not just in general, but more than Tom Brady wants to win another Super Bowl, more than an ambitious politician seeks to win high office, and more than a man in love will do everything that he can to win over and marry the woman he can't stop thinking about. The second lesson is a recognition of where the treasure of the kingdom can be found. The merchant in the parable knew the places he needed to go, and so he visited the shops and the markets where pearls would be sold. The farmer wasn't so much searching for a busy, busy buried treasure, but what he discovered in the middle of his workday, tilling new parts of the property that had not yet been farmed for the landowner, he knew what to do. Where do we go to find the treasure? We find God in personal prayer. We find him in the sacraments, especially Mass and Confession. We find him speaking to us in sacred scripture. We find him radiantly shining in the lives and writings of the saints. We find him living within us in the truly Christian, virtuous, moral life. We find him in the loving service of neighbor, since every time we care for someone who is hungry, thirsty, naked, a stranger, ill, imprisoned, or otherwise in need, Jesus tells us that we, through them, are caring for him. But in order for us to find God there, we need to grasp that each of the things I just named is a treasure. Because whenever we don't think we're dealing with a treasure, it's going to be almost impossible for us to sacrifice to find God there. The third virtue needed is the willingness to sacrifice everything to obtain the treasure. For if we're not prepared to sacrifice that much, we'll often not be willing to sacrifice anything. The rich pearl hunter and the poor, hard-working peasant sold all they had to obtain the pearl and field, respectively. Likewise, we need to do more than hunger for the kingdom and recognize where we can find it. We also need to be willing to make the sacrifices necessary to seize it. The apostles are the great illustrations of those who, when finding a treasure, left all they had to follow Jesus. When Jesus called Peter, Andrew, James, and John from their boats right after they had captured the largest catch in their careers, the evangelist told us they left everything immediately to follow him. Likewise, when Jesus came to St. Matthew at his tax collecting post and said, follow me, Matthew left all of the money on the table, all the ledgers, and immediately got up to follow Jesus. St. Peter would later summarize the common characteristic of the apostles when he turned to Jesus and said, we have given up everything to follow you. That's in sharp contrast to the one who's famous for not leaving everything to follow Jesus and instead for walking away from him. 
Jesus told the rich young man, if you wish to be perfect, go sell what you have and give the money to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. This man was too addicted to his material possessions to leave them behind. He chose his stuff over Jesus and went away sad. And unfortunately, many are like him. They say their prayers each day. They come to Mass on Holy Days of Obligation. They come to confession at least once a year. They get married in the church. They contribute to charity and support their parish. But they're not really as happy in the faith as God wants them to be, as they desire to be. They're missing something because something is holding them back. Their earthly treasure has begun to own them. We need to be able to get rid of the earthly treasure in order to obtain something that won't be lost. This type of attitude toward the kingdom, toward sacrificing things for the greatest thing of all, explains the, all the greatness that happens in individual lives and in the church. It explains martyrdom, those who love the Lord more than even their life. It explains how to suffer and die well. For those who really seek God and his kingdom first, death is not dreaded, but desired. It explains vocations to the priesthood and the religious life, those who give up everything in the world in order to be with God. It explains what makes vibrant parishes, because it's in those parishes that people sacrifice huge amounts of their time, their expertise, and their money to build them initially and constantly build them up. The best place for us to make the choice to seize the pearl and the treasure is at Mass. St. John Vianney, the patron saint and priest, once talked about how precious the Mass is. Next to this sacrament, he said, we're like someone who dies of thirst next to a river, just needing to bend the head down to drink. We're like a poor man next to a treasure chest, when all that's needed is to stretch out the hand and grab the gold coin. Jesus in the Eucharist is the treasure that quenches our thirst, that makes us truly rich. That joy that treasures is ours to receive. That's what Jesus offers us at the altar, the deal of an eternal lifetime. Let's beg him for the wisdom and the courage necessary to sacrifice whatever we need to do in order to make that deal. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 